Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Trinidad in 1957. <laughs> Had we known, we'd be wearing flip-flops, but we're not. And uh, I'm not talking with my normal voice, but uh, you may wonder, God, who is that guy? I'll keep you in suspense. This, nonetheless, is Julian Clary, comedian, actor, writer. <laughs> and here he is with his third novel, Briefs Encountered. I hope you'll agree that Julian has made the transition from cute to handsome. <laughs> and I hope you'll humor me in thinking that I've made the transition from handsome to distinguished. Oh, God's grace. <laughs> Third time lucky? What do you mean? As a novelist. Um, well, I feel I've been quite lucky with all of them. Um, hello. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm just getting, getting my bearings. This isn't showbiz as we know it. It's a book event, isn't it? Yes, that's right. So there's Incidentally, this is the first signing event. So you will be the first, if you do have your book signed by Julian, you'll be the first on the planet. Yes. Um, so we, we're going, we talk about the book, is that right? Oh, yes. And then you ask questions. There's no need for any buggery or oral references. <laughs> no. As a matter of fact, I want everybody here to know that when sexual puns are made. Yes, I get them. I just don't talk about them. He talks about them. <laughs> and actually talks about himself because Julian Clary is a character in this book. Shall we explain how this happens? Well, I've, writ I've written myself in... It's all quite complicated because the, the book is set in the house in which I live. I didn't want it to be... It's, it's not autobiographical. Some bits are. And then also in my other books, um, I know from experience, if you write about Christopher Biggins in a disparaging way, or Leslie Joseph... You've done it again. <laughs> and then then the, the book goes to the lawyers and they get upset and they say, you can't say that about Christopher Biggins. And in the, my last book, I, I made reference to Elizabeth Taylor and they said, Elizabeth Taylor will sue you. And I thought the chances of her actually sitting down, curling up with one of my books <laughs> was quite remote. But they did make me sign a thing saying, if you know, I'm sued by Elizabeth Taylor, um, then I will, I will pay myself rather than the, the publisher. Which doesn't answer your question, really. Um, so I, I chose to be rude about myself, is what I'm saying. I thought it was easier than, you know, I'm not going to sue myself. So. And we start with a joke, briefs encountered, because Julian lives in the former home of Noel Coward. And, yes, it's true. It's all falling into place now. <laughs> and there are some briefs involved that are integral to the plot. That's right, that's right. Just when you think, oh, he kind of shot his wad with that joke. Oh. Uh, nonetheless. <laughs> nice talk. Two-thirds of the way through, enter a pair of briefs. Mm. So it, <laughs> it, it makes sense. Although, frankly... The portrait of a beautiful woman on the cover is a bit deceptive. She turns up in the last tenth of the book, shall we say. Yes, and I only wrote her in because I needed to explain who this woman was on the... <laughs> <laughs> the mysteries of the world of publishing, they decided on the cover before I'd finished the book while I was still writing it. And I did suggest that they change this to Noel Coward, but they were quite determined that this woman was the face of Briefs Encountered, so with an uncannily large head... <laughs> now, the book is told going back and forth between the present tense and the time of Noel Coward. I think that's enough 
to say, Noel Coward appears because a lot of it is based on his life. As I surmise from the bibliography in the back, all the books in the bibliography have to do with Noel Coward. So did you go on a kind of Noel Coward year? Um, more, it took more than a year. I had to, I had to research um, the facts. So it's a fictional account of Noel's life in this house, in my house, between 1927 and 1957. And uh, his relationship with Jack, who was his lover when the book starts, um, did span that period. So I wanted to be sure, although I was fictionalizing it, that the facts of when they were in the house together were correct. And uh, when Noel wrote various plays, that that was all in the right order. Um, so that, that was a rather tedious, you know, slow process. But I need, it needed to, to be um, true to, to what actually occurred. Do you think some people are going to read this and think it's actually a biography of Noel Coward and that everything you've written is true? I don't know. But there's no accounting for the, what the general public think, <laughs> I find. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's, most people will realise that it's fiction. I did, I, did have to, I did feel a bit of a nerve when I thought, oh, this is a good idea, you know, I'll write about Noel in this house and, uh, and sitting writing in the study where Noel wrote his plays. And I, but then when it actually came to writing dialogue and putting words into the master's mouth, I, it felt a bit of a nerve. Um, but then I had to sort of channel him, I like to think, and then it, then it was all right. Well, of course, there's a lot of channeling going on in this book because it is a ghost story. Yes. And you are the living present tense, as it were. And so the people get an idea. Would you like to read just a passage that shows how you work yourself into the book? Because Julian yes. has been very brave, and he's been disparaging about himself in his own book. Don't spoil it for them. <laughs> Um, how much, how many pages do you think? <laughs> You'll be surprised how long two pages are. Oh, okay. In buying this house, I set off a chain of events that otherwise would never have happened. I have found myself at the epicenter of strange, sordid, violent, dangerous happenings. But finally, after everything, I am enlightened. Well, that's relief. Why this house? Why move to Kent at all, you might well ask. Well, a famous actor in his mid-forties, whose career is fading as quickly as his looks, is often inclined to get out of town. I'm not the first. There were, after all, certain facts to be faced. Although I had more than a few quid in the bank from my golden years on the big screen, the parts were drying up. The last call from my agent, the formerly respected Marcia Brown, was a tentative offer of a walk-on part in a TV drama about sex rituals on the Isle of Wight called The Silence of the Limbs. <laughs> I, who was once cast as the young Michael Hutchine in the multi-award-winning Disney spectacular Dead Man Wanking, had, had lost my sex appeal along with my trim waistline. Goodbye, rock star parts. Unless, of course, the Duran Duran biopic idea takes off, which seems unlikely. Moving to the country was already an idea floating around in my mind when a number of things happened in quick succession that led me to this particular house at this particular time. I had always felt a connection with Noel Coward. By pure coincidence, I was born in Watergrave Road, Teddington, Middlesex, in a flat right opposite the very house in which Noel was born. 
And in my final showcase performance at RADA at the age of 21, I was cast as Elliot in Private Lives, and I was a smash, a he's the best thing since Michael Crawford genuine hit. Marcia Brown, the most impressive agent in London at that time, signed me, and the rest is history. Then, five years ago, my agent told me that Channel 4 were making a big-budget three-part series about Noel Coward called Noel the Vegas Years, dramatising the master's remarkable comeback in the 1950s. I got the part. During my research, my personal assistant, Jess, had made a few... Dis oh, bless you. <laughs> ..had made a few discreet phone calls on my behalf, and I had been permitted access to the Watergrave Roadhouse in Teddington, where Coward was born, and also to 17 Gerald Road, Belgravia, where he, where he would preside over exclusive soirees. Yet... I'm getting to me in a minute. <laughs> Yet phone messages and letters to his country refuge in Kent, now called Priest's Hole House, had produced no response. One morning, just before filming was due to start, Jess handed me a torn-out page from Woman's Own magazine. Grimacing slightly, she said, this might explain a thing or two. There was a full-colour picture of Julian Clary, the camp comic and renowned homosexual, as he liked to call himself standing in front of a beautiful Elizabethan farmhouse, arms wide open, as if to say, all this is mine. The place was none other than Noel's old residence. To add salt to the wound, the headline was Homo of the Manor. <laughs> Noel would be turning in his grave. That year, to my great delight, my performance as Noel was nominated for the Best Actor Award at the BAFTAs. It was a typical stellar evening with the brightest lights of film and television gathered in their finest gowns and dinner suits. And I was feeling excited and confident. The only downside was that to my dismay, and I wasn't alone, the presenter of the award was none other than Mr. Clary himself. One can only imagine he was standing in for someone at short notice. <laughs> I'm thrilled to the marrow to be here this evening, he began. How lovely to be amongst, to be amongst so much talent, but enough about the security guards. Now, you've you got to get the idea here that Julian is putting himself down throughout the book. <laughs> and indeed, in the cast of characters in the front, it says, Julian Clary, annoying camp comic. Uh, is there something psychological going on here? Do you, do you feel the need to say, folks, I'm not that great? Oh, some dreary journalist from The Times interviewed me recently, and she asked if I had low self-esteem. and that, I just thought it was funny, and once I started, I couldn't stop. Um, <laughs> Well, it goes on for about 360 pages. Right? <laughs> um, but uh, nonetheless, Julian doesn't get to have sex in this book, which separates him from most of the characters. No, he has. I'm caught in the lavatory, remember? Oh, yes, that's true, with two people. <laughs> that's, right. that's right. Yes. Now, it's interesting when an author... <laughs> do, do we know what's in here? Um, it's interesting when an author write sex scenes because in the back of his head there's always the knowledge of the reality of the bad sex competition. Mm. Did you approach these scenes with trepidation or glee? Um, I did rewrite them. The, the, the first version of... Is there only one, there's only one big sex scene, isn't there? Well, uh, where the son who... Yes, uh, yes. yes. Okay. That, that 19 was... years old. 19 years old and legal. <laughs> that was very graphic and alarming in the first version, so I did, uh, I did lighten it up, because sex is quite funny anyway. 
but um, I wasn't writing it as an arousing piece of erotic literature. I have to well, get your thrills where you can, frankly. Well, folks, it probably tells you something about my life, but there were a couple of moments in this. Well, anyway. Um, <laughs> is your house at all haunted? It is haunted, yes. Um, I, I didn't think it was when I moved in. I had no sort of um, belief in these things, but the, a journalist called Chrissy Eiley came to interview me when the first book came out. And... Uh, she declared that the house was haunted, and furthermore, she whipped out some divining sticks. This whole scene I put in the book, um, exactly as it happened. And she went round the house with these divining sticks, and they began to twitch um, in various places. And uh, she identified uh, a 17th century washerwoman in the kitchen, um, a confused youth in the upstairs middle bedroom. <laughs> Um, and someone dressed as the Laughing Cavalier in, just outside my bedroom door, which she said is the vortex <laughs> where these ghostly beings come in and out of orbit, as it were. And, and Noel Coward himself in the front bedroom on the top of the stairs. Um, and since she said that, various you know, things have happened. And it's what I've done in the house, it's, it's more of the house that is a, a spirit as well. So if, you, if I invite people to stay that the house doesn't like or Noel doesn't like, things will happen like a sewage pipe will burst or pictures will fall off the wall in the middle of the night. And they, they just do seem to happen. And there's a lot of what might be mice running around upstairs, that type mm. of noise. Yes. Do you have that? I do have that. Um, when I was writing the book, you'd hear this strange noise and I, I could only describe it as it sounded just like a cotton reel rolling across a floorboard, which isn't what a mouse would sound like. It wasn't sort of scuttling and squeaking. Mm. It would go on and on. Mm. So, I don't know. There uh, are a couple of beautiful scenes where Noel and his partner contemplate the beauty of the setting, and they feel at great peace. Do you feel that way down there? Oh, I do, yes. You can go completely feral um, when you become rustic. And, uh, but it is very beautiful, but there are, if, I don't, if I'm not seeing anyone much, you don't, there's no need to wash or anything. And uh, I have been known to drink tap water. <laughs> and it's this last week, when the weather's like this, and um, it feels a bit naff talking about it, but it is, it's sort of communing with nature, and it is sort of spring-like, and it, does, it's, it makes you live in the moment, which I believe is what we're supposed to aspire to do. You mentioned that you didn't want to libel any living persons, but that doesn't stop you from telling a couple of jokes about a couple of people. I mean, for example, David Guest, uh, his plastic surgeon, the one for whom there's never too much. I like that. Um, and uh, Nigel Havers takes the role of the father in Billy Elliot because he wants to stretch himself. I mean, you're being a bit catty here, aren't you? <laughs> Well, I, I kind of wrote about people who amused me, but also I, I, I sort of know David Guest, and I did panto with Nigel Havers, and he's a nice chap, and he's charming, and I don't think he'd sue me. And similarly, uh, Paul O'Grady is, is another peripheral character, so I've, I wrote a scene where Paul O'Grady gets drunk, and they have a sort of spat in the, at a garden party, Julian Clary and Paul O'Grady. And, <laughs> um, and he does live, as it happens. I mean, it was Paul that told me about this house. That's why I bought it in the first place. And um, um, so he does live across the field. And um, he, it is quite funny what goes on. 
you can only imagine. <laughs> I would like to. <laughs> now, people might say, but Julian usually has a live audience. How can he lock himself up for half a year at a time? Is it a monastic life? Uh, yes, it's, it's long and slow, but I quite, I'm quite... As long as I know I'm going to go on tour one day, you know, it's not the rest of my life sitting there writing. Um, and the difference between being on stage, obviously, is, you know, when you're writing, it's just between... And when you finish a book, it's just between you and the reader, so it's a sort of one-on-one -on -one thing. And you write with that in mind. When, when, if I'm writing um, filth for my live show, that's a different thing. You're writing it with, for sort of hundreds of people. So I, I quite like the, the two different means of expression, but they're sort of the same thing. They're different branches of the same thing. And I like... The thing about comedy is that it's gone as soon as you've said something funny. It's lost in the ether, but if you write it down, then uh, someone might pick this book up in 50 years and, um, and laugh. That's quite a nice thought. Amongst the sources you refer to is, of course, Sheridan Morley who was the Noel Coward brain box of my lifetime. Sheridan himself was, was a bit dry compared to Noel Coward. Um, did, how did you feel reading his works? What, Sheridan's yeah. works? Oh, well, I was fascinated by um, all the accounts of Noel. You know, I was sort of drinking in all this, absorbing all this information. Um, and there's a book Richard Briers wrote, a very lovely anecdotal book about um, Noel Coward, which I hadn't known about. I sort of preferred that. Um, mm -hmm. I, wasn't, I wasn't so interested in analysing his works. And, I, and it was, you know, it's, it's a book about a love affair and emotions. And so I sort of wanted to... Um, and Noel, Noel seems, you know, from what I've read, to be quite insecure in love. And uh, he wrote a poem, didn't he, saying, I am no good at love. And uh, so that, that was what interested me, really, rather than any sort of... Uh, Analysis. There comes a moment in the book when I think, Julian, you old softy, because Noel contemplates the love that he once had, lost, couldn't hold on to. It's very moving. It, it, to me, hits the truth about the reality of true love if you're happy and you happen to have that moment in your life. And do you think he had found it for a time? Yes, not with Jack, though. Oh, I shouldn't say that. Boiled <laughs> it. <laughs> Um, yes, with, yes his, no, think, with his successor, the Graham character. I think he. I think that was a, maybe Noel's first big love, Jack, and I think that that really swept him off his feet, and uh, and it, it went on long enough to have all the variations of love and all the agonies. And uh, I quite like writing. I quite like making people laugh, as we know, but it's quite nice to move people as well, uh, which is is um, is obviously easier to do in a book than when you, they've paid money to see something funny. And um, the, the, love, the love story between Noel and Jack is, um, is sort of mirrored in a way between the present day story of Richard and his lover Fran, who's gone to America. So, and that is what I was thinking about there was the idea that sometimes people think love can wait, you know, and that you have to get on with more important things because Fran is very busy. And, uh, and, and then if you might leave it too late. So, so that's sort of what I was working through. It's, what happens when you write a book, I find, in all, of, all three of my books, is that because it takes so long, whatever's going on in your life at that time, um, 
emotionally and psychologically comes out in the book, whether you realize it or not. So those were maybe the things that were going on in my life too at that time. Someone was far away. Someone was far away. So the, the book was kind of a, a love letter saying, um, come back to me before it's too late. And uh, do you know he did? <laughs> oh, that's great. However, in the book, uh, it doesn't end happily for everyone. Indeed, one of the characters winds up dead. But on the other hand, he is seen in the afterlife. So he at least gets to smile in the long run. But it, it tells on a, a lot of serious themes. For example, how Noel, uh, being famous uh, and sexually active in the time that he lived, was in fear of the law. Mm. Well, can you imagine? I mean, he was as gay as you could be, and um, he wrote songs like Mad About the Boy. Um, however, it was illegal, and uh, so I, I sort of wanted to tackle that a bit. And my, my thinking was, and I've made this up because I don't know, I thought, why did Noel buy this remote house in the middle of Kent in 1926, just after he'd met Jack? Why did he do that? And I thought, could it be that they wanted somewhere to conduct their love affair where they could wander through the woods holding hands without you know, being watched all the time? And not only was it illegal, but he was very famous, so people would be looking. So I, 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 um, I thought maybe that was why. Of course, there is a policeman who can't wait to bust him for some kind of sexual activity. And you've described this policeman as a middle-aged, balding, tenacious policeman might as well be northern. <laughs> Were you thinking of John Alderton there? No, I was, you know, you can, you can, when you read a book, you can read it in any voice you want. But I, as I wrote it, I sort of imagined that he was northern and that sort of... And he's very tenacious, and, and he's, he's constantly watching years go by, and he's still sort of peering around hedges, trying to catch them out. It seemed uh, like a northern thing um, <laughs> to me. I don't know much about northern people, but I, they don't give up, do they? Now, this is kind of crazy, but I've never been to Julian slash Noel's house in Kent, but I have been to Noel's house in Jamaica. How have you? It's gorgeous. It's, you can rent it, can't you? you can, yes, that's right, because it's owned, or at least until recently was owned, by Chris Blackwell, the founder of Island Records. And it has a beautiful, commanding view of the sea below and a beautiful inlet and so forth. And, and you would think this is where God would live if he had real estate. And, uh, but why do you think Noel went there? Was it to get away from this repressive atmosphere? Um, oh, that's sort of um, difficult to say, isn't it? I think he went there to avoid paying tax, partly, <laughs> as I understand it. Um, I think he liked the sun, and I think the war, the, the house was requisitioned in the war, and uh, the army trashed it a bit, and I didn't think it was ever quite the same when, when Noel moved back after that. It didn't feel quite the same. And uh, I've seen the pictures of, of Fireflies, what it's called, isn't it, that house? Oh, yes, that yes, yeah. that's right, yes. Um, yeah. Looks lovely, and why wouldn't you like it? And also, he was doing lots of lovely paintings by that time. Oh, yes, right. Um, and I think if, if, you know, if he was going to be a ghostly presence somewhere, surely you'd rather be in Jamaica than um, my house in Kent. 
but mm. <laughs> according to Chrissy Eiley, he's in that front bedroom. <laughs> and if, if I was stuck writing the book, I would go and lie on the bed there and say, show yourself. <laughs> Not a sausage. But of course, he does appear in the book to the present tense actor, Richard, mm. on a couple of key occasions in mm. this man's life. And you do play with fantasy in the middle of a lot of realistic themes. Mm -hmm. Did you feel I'm in, in danger of going too far? Did you tether yourself? Well, I've always been in danger of going too far. <laughs> um, it had, I had to bring the two, the, the chapters alternate. So, you know, you get a bit of Noel and you get a bit of Fran and then there's various sort of cliffhangers and then there comes a point when the two worlds had to come together and that was, that was one of the most difficult bits. In one version I had um, Noel um, found Jack's stash of opium and uh, he'd smoked it and uh, someone else was under anaesthetic and uh, Julian Clary had, had um, one line too many of cocaine. So I had all three of them having a dinner party and that, um, that was fun to write but didn't really work. So I had to find another way, I won't tell you what I did. But um, what do you mean by fantasy exactly? Well, it's uh, all a fantasy. It's, isn't it's it? all a fantasy. Uh, and it suggests, for example, that the inspiration for uh, some of Coward's most famous works came from situations in life which you have described, such as Blythe Spirit, a reference to the uh, pictures coming off the wall. Oh, and so yes. Forth. I'm sure Blythe Spirit was, um, well, as sure as I can be, it's, it's a, about this house or inspired by this house because. Um, he re refers to things that you wouldn't refer to otherwise, like Madame Arcati on the knoll. There's, there's a knoll just um, over the field owned by Paul O'Grady, who um, owns half of Kent. <laughs> and, um, and there's a reference to a, a car crash, I think, around the corner. There's references to Hythe, which is you know, this sort of quaint place um, a few miles away. Mm -hmm. So yes, I was fairly sure about my ground there. Right, okay. Now, when you go back and forth between the present and the past, as this book does, you run the danger of one bit becoming more interesting than the other, <laughs> and, and people thinking, oh, I'd really wish he'd stay with this time. Uh, did you fret at all that each half was not as interesting as the other half? Um, yes. Um, that's a constant worry. Um, I like to think that didn't happen. I was inspired, I, when I was younger I read um, the Tales of the City books, Armistead Morpan, and he tends to do a similar thing with lots of different storylines and uh, you just think, oh that's getting interesting and then there's something else, but then you have to reawaken your interest in the other, other storyline. And uh, I mean, how did that work for you? Did, was that all right? I was fine. There, there was, there's only one minute where you're left with a character on the verge of death, but he might recover. And then you turn the page and it says, Noel. And, and you're off onto another Noel Coward bit. And I thought, oh, I want to find out, I want to find out. Well, then you have to read the next chapter and then you'll find out. So. Well, of course I do. I do, I do. Not that difficult. I know. <laughs> I know. I, I am a tenacious reader. It's just, I, I'm a creature of the modern era. I'm impatient. Mm. I, I want my pleasure now, frankly. A lot of films are like that there as well, aren't they? Where they oh, yes, 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 yes. Did you find it hard 
to write about a man and a woman. Uh, because, ladies and gentlemen, there she is. And uh, one of the main characters in the book has to, for the sake of the plot, marry a Russian countess. I don't know. It's not for the sake of the plot. Jack, Jack did. He did do married, that. Yes. He did do that. Yes. Right. So, did I find it hard to write from a woman's point of view? Yeah. No. <laughs> Not at all. I've, um, I quite like writing um, from women's points of views. I, I did notice in my previous books I wrote, that women often are quite evil. And um, proper strong women, but they do awful things. And I was determined to write a nice female character in this, Mar Marcia. Yes. She's sort of force for good. Yes, yes. In the midst uh, of the evil bitches. There are other yeah. evil oh, people. Oh, we won't talk about that. Um, well... Ladies and gentlemen, in a moment, you will be able to be the first people to have Julian Clary's new novel signed by him. Briefs encountered, and uh, good luck, Julian. I've enjoyed it. I've read the book. I've enjoyed it, and it's always great to see you. Thank you very much. Thank you for coming.